This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, looking at verses 15 through 22. Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. Hear the Word of God. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you on this beautiful Lord's Day morning that we uh, have the privilege of looking into your word. Father, we pray that you would open to us this very word by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would give us insight into what it's teaching. We pray, Father, you would give us hearts that are ready to receive what it has to say. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus remains in the temple precincts there in Jerusalem. Uh, In Matthew, it is the week of his crucifixion. This would have been on Tuesday. And he has been interacting with the leaders of the Jews there in the temple area. And if you've been with us, you've seen over the last few weeks how Jesus has told three parables that are designed to demonstrate a couple of realities that are taking place even as Jesus is telling them, as well as having taken place in the years and centuries past. If you want to take a close-up view, what is happening, even as Jesus is telling the parable, particularly of the two sons, uh, is that those who appear to be the religious people, those who appear to be the good people, are, are only so outwardly, but inwardly their hearts are far from the Lord, While in response to the preaching, say, of John the Baptist and now the preaching of Jesus, those who have been disobedient, those whose lives have been characterized by dishonesty and corruption and immorality and all kinds of sin against God, are the ones who are responding, recognizing their need, uh, recognizing God's grace, those who are responding to the message of the gospel as Jesus and his disciples are proclaiming that message throughout Judea and in Galilee. But that's the close-up view. There's something bigger taking place as well, as Jesus has demonstrated through the parable of the tenants that we saw, and then the parable of the wedding feast, 
then it has to do with a much bigger shift from the old covenant people of God constituted in the nation of Israel, centered in Jerusalem, and even there centered around the temple, the transition from that to the new covenant people of God, now constituted uh, in Christ, uh, and as will soon be the case, no longer centered in Jerusalem, no longer centered in the temple, but wherever God's people gather, Christ is present. He, that is his church. That is his, his, his place on, on the earth. So you see this large transition that takes place through the rejection of Israel as a whole, although not every individual, obviously. Uh, and then the spread of the gospel, as we see it in Acts, the formation of the New Testament church, and then the destruction of Jerusalem, where that transition is, is complete to the new covenant people of God. Uh, as Jesus says in chapter 21, I will take the kingdom from you and give it to a people producing its fruits. Or the parable of the wedding feast, where the original guests who choose not to come uh, are, are set aside as unworthy, and those, uh, the invitation goes out in a very broad and general way, and people are brought in, people into the kingdom, Jew and Gentile alike, who respond to the offer of the gospel. So those three parables teaching, both on the individual level, the response of people to Christ, as well as rejection of Christ, but also, also on a larger level, the, re- the rejection of the old covenant people as a whole, and the transition to the new covenant church, both Jew and Gentile, all who believe in Jesus. Now we come to another set of three, uh, a set of three challenges uh, to Jesus, uh, efforts to trip him up, efforts to embarrass him, efforts to discredit him through subtle questions designed to be essentially without answer. And we see this in these next several sections, ending with a fourth challenge that actually comes from Jesus back to the Jewish leaders, but a set of three and it's, if you'll note, each attack has to do with the interests of the attackers. Here, as we'll see, it's the Pharisees and their disciples, together with the Herodians, who throw this question at Jesus about paying taxes. And then in verse 23, the Sadducees, who say there's no, no resurrection, who deny the doctrine of the resurrection, come and ask Jesus a question having to do with the resurrection. And then in verse 34, uh, again, the Pharisees come at Jesus with a question having to do with what is the greatest commandment? What was the greatest point of the law? And so over the next few weeks, Lord willing, we'll look at these and then look at Jesus' own question that he asks back at them at the end of this chapter. Well, today we're looking at verses 15 through 22 with this question having to do with the payment of taxes And we'll look at that in just a minute, but first, let's start with their approach. As we look at this passage, it really breaks up the two halves. First of all, their attack against Jesus by means of their question, and then Jesus' answer or his response to the question that they have. So first of all, their approach or their attack to Jesus in verses 15 through 17. First thing we see about their approach or this attack they make on Jesus is that it is enticing in its flattery. Verse 15, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. This was premeditated. This was something they met together to plan, or to use the more sinister word, to plot, that Matthew uses here. uh, Plotted together how to entangle Jesus, how to trap him, how to catch him 
in his words, in what he's saying. Jesus was all about words. He was about more than words. He was about power. The kingdom of God, as Paul would later say, is not a matter just of talk, but of power. But Jesus talked a lot. There was a great deal of preaching, a great deal of teaching accompanied by the works of his power as well. And so the Pharisees, who by this point are fairly hardened in their opposition to Jesus, uh, plot together. Here Jesus is teaching, he's drawing crowds, people are following him, people are listening to him. They come together to try to figure out some way to discredit Jesus. And so, verse 16, their plot is put into motion. They send their disciples to him. Curious. The Pharisees themselves stay in the background. You must get the picture here of the mob bosses who are pulling the strings from behind the scene and send their henchmen out to do the dirty work. Well, they send their disciples, but their disciples were not alone. They were accompanied by the Herodians. Now, the Herodians initially were partisans of Herod the Great, those who favored Herod the Great, and now by this time, his son, Herod Antipas, who were loyal to Herod. Now, Herod ruled, but he did so under the... uh, authority of Rome. And so what you have here are two very different groups of people. The Pharisees, on the one hand, who uh, opposed Rome, who resented Rome and its rule and its power and its control. Uh, The Pharisees were the ones who were so thorough in their knowledge of the law and so apparently, at least, careful in their observance of the law, though as Jesus exposes that as being mainly outward and superficial and not from the heart. Nevertheless, that was their reputation. Uh, Very strong, strongly Jewish uh, nationalists, whereas the Herodians in the house of Herod had a vested interest in Rome. Rome gave them their authority to rule. And so you had people who had uh, feelings against Rome and the Pharisees and their disciples, people who were fairly partial toward Rome and the Herodians. And these two groups come to Jesus in verse 16, and they really butter him up. Just sickening their words, just how sweet they are. Smiles on their faces. Teacher, we know that you are true. You're you're reliable. You're honest. You're a man of integrity, which is precisely as you see what they're not. We know that you are true. And you teach the way of God truthfully. Smiles all around. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Literally, you don't look at people's faces. Now, the ESV translates that you are not swayed by appearances. That's that's what it means. You, You don't look at people's faces. In other words, Jesus doesn't see on people's faces how they're responding and change his message accordingly. You know, it's not like the politician who checks which way the wind's blowing, you know, see if people like what he's saying, if they're smiling or if they're frowning, change what he's saying. Jesus, and in that they're absolutely correct, as Jesus very quickly demonstrates, he's not swayed by what people think. He does speak the truth. He is obviously a man of integrity. They're absolutely right in these things, although they don't agree with these things. They don't like Jesus. Or if we want to be beneficial to them, we might say, well, yeah, they basically you know, believe Jesus says what he thinks, even though they disagree with it. But they are really laying it on thick here. And they have a motive in doing so. They want to coax Jesus into telling them exactly what he thinks. They want to draw him out so that they get 
a right answer that reflects Jesus' own views. Because they think they have Jesus between a rock and a hard place. They have him on the horns of a dilemma. They are about to pose to him a question carefully considered. Remember, this is part of a plot to which they think there's no right answer. And that's what they come up with here. Having said all this stuff to Jesus, to try to put him in a position where he uh, has to come through, they then ask a question. But before we move on, let's look at this, this flattery. Um, Jesus wasn't swayed by it at all, obviously. Uh, but how, how difficult that can be. You know, the world has, and Satan uh, has various ways of attacking, ways of coming at Jesus, but also ways of coming at us. And sometimes, for some believers, they do face a frontal assault, a difficult, outright attack. But sometimes Satan appears in a more winsome guise, shows up as an angel of light. I like the way J.C. Ryle, the 19th uh, 19th century uh, Church of England bishop, uh, puts it. He says, we mistake greatly if we suppose that persecution and hard usage are the only weapons in Satan's armory. He knows how to poison souls by the world's seductive kindness when he cannot frighten them by the fiery dart and the sword. Let us not be ignorant of his devices. By peace, he destroys many. Let us beware the flatterer. Satan is never so dangerous as when he appears as an angel of light. The world is never so dangerous to the Christian as when it smiles. When Judas betrayed his Lord, it was with a kiss. And so this same tactic that they use to come at Jesus, they sometimes use to come at us. Uh, not, not harshly, not cruelly, but politely, sweetly, nicely, attractively. Well, Jesus wasn't drawn in, and neither should we be drawn in as well. So it's enticing and it's flattery, but then it's also treacherous in its subtlety. Look at verse 17. They say, having said all this to Jesus, tell us then. Since all that's true, Jesus, tell us then what you think. Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, that was a much debated question. It was also a very emotional question. Because the Jews not only resented paying taxes to Rome, but in some cases thought it was treason to God to pay taxes to Rome. In fact, in the year 6 AD, there was a revolt led by Judas the Galilean, who's referred to in Acts chapter 5, against Rome. It was put down, but part of the zeal for that arose out of seeing paying taxes to Rome as disobedience to God, as dishonoring to God. And so there was not only the, the resentment of having to part with some of your own money, But for some, it was a religious duty not to pay tax to Rome. So this was a debated question. This was an emotional question. It was also uh, a a very divisive question. As we've seen with the Pharisees and their disciples, the Herodians, two very different feelings about Rome. But where they had Jesus in this treacherous question was here. On the one hand, if Jesus came down and said, yes, it is right, it is appropriate to pay taxes to Caesar, he would not only further infuriate the Pharisees, 
but he would risk losing the favor of the people, who by and large did not like paying taxes, and did not, especially did not like paying taxes to Rome. And so if Jesus came down answering one way, he could risk alienating himself from the very people he came to reach. On the other hand, if Jesus said, no, you should not pay taxes, the Pharisees, in a sense, would like that answer. The people would love that answer. But then the Herodians could come around and charge Jesus with sedition. He charged Jesus with saying, well, you ought not to pay your Roman taxes. And the Romans would not think very highly of that. And so, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. They had Jesus exactly where they wanted. There's no right answer. There's no way he can answer this question without doing harm to himself and to his influence with the people. Now, it's brilliant in this passage and in the ones that follow to see how Jesus answers these questions, how he responds. And so we come then to his response. We've seen their approach, their attack. But then in verses 18 through 22, Jesus responds. And the first thing that he gives them by way of response is a challenge to their motives. Jesus first does not even address the question. He addresses them. He addresses their hearts. Look at verse 18. Jesus Aware of their malice. Now, it probably did not take the, the almighty power of deity to realize these people were out to get him. The fact is, he saw through their flattery, but he also knew their hearts. And Jesus is embodying there some of his own teaching, the teaching of Scripture, uh, to be innocent as doves, but wise or shrewd as serpents. You know, Jesus, first of all, was going to call them on the carpet for their hearts, for their motive. He was going to deal with their question, but he also was not going to let slide the fact that they, unlike what they said of him, are completely duplicitous, completely insincere. And in fact, he gives them the word they deserve, and that is you hypocrites. Because they are. They're presenting themselves one way, while in fact they are consciously something else. They present themselves very nicely and benignly and pleasantly to Jesus, while in fact their motive is to bring him down. If that's not hypocrisy, nothing is. And Jesus makes it plain to them that they're not fooling anybody. Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test? Well, doesn't God say you shall not put the Lord your God to the test? Well, that's exactly what they're doing. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? And then he deals with their question. He asks them a question. First he challenges their motives. Then he asks them a question about the coin. Verse 19, show me the coin for the tax. And so they brought him a denarius. Now some have said, well, this demonstrates that Jesus didn't have any money. Uh, maybe that's true. Maybe he didn't happen to have a denarius on him. Uh, but I think it's more likely that this is... Similar to, you know, if you go to a magic show and the magician says, anybody got a quarter, you know, and somebody produces a quarter. It came from you. It involves you in what's going on here. So Jesus says, somebody bring me a denarius. And so they do. He involves them in, in, in producing the evidence for the answer that he is about to give. And so they bring him this denarius. And we've encountered the coin before. Again, you know, the, the, uh, the wage for a day laborer, basic the going rate for a day's work for a day laborer. We saw that earlier. And they bring in the coin, and Jesus says, well, let's take a look at it. Whose likeness, whose inscription is this on the coin? Well, there is an image, actually two images, on the typical denarius of that time. 
on one side there was um, an image of the emperor's head, you know, his, his face, his profile, along with this inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, on one side. And on the other side, there was typically an image of Livia, seen as the incarnation of Pax or peace. And that in itself was a difficulty for the Jews, uh, especially those who saw the second commandment as forbidding images of any kind, you know, images of people uh, of any kind. Um, That was a problem. But it also was a problem when it said on it, claiming that he was a son of the divine Augustus, uh, also the inscription Pontifex Maximus, which would translate as high priest. And so the coin itself was somewhat offensive to the Jews. And that, that was the image. That was the inscription that was on the coin. And Jesus says, whose is it? They said, Caesar's. You know, his, his, his face, his name, his image is, is on this coin. And that's important for what Jesus is about to say. Because then we come to his answer to the question. You know, what's, how's Jesus going to respond? Here's what he says. After getting them to commit to the fact that this has Caesar's picture on it, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, it says when they heard it, they marveled. They were astounded. They were dumbfounded. You know, I mean, they plotted. They said, okay, let's come up with a question he can't answer. Anyway, he answers it. And he answers the question. But he does so in a way that affirms the Pharisees' position and affirms the Herodians' position. You know, they go away thinking, how did that happen? You know, we, we, we thought through this. There's no answer to this question. Yet he answered it in such a way that he effectively doesn't offend anyone. He doesn't challenge Rome. In fact, he affirms it. He doesn't challenge uh, the Jews and their religion. In fact, he affirms it. And so he answers in a way that neither of the parties can find fault. And more importantly than that, he answers in a way that is faithful to biblical truth. This is one of the most well-known statements of Jesus even today. And it, in and of itself is, 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 a, is a clear and concise and, and memorable statement of biblical truth. But it, it summarizes more than it itself says. It says it, but it summarizes uh, in, in effect, the, the law. Loving God with all of your heart, of loving your neighbor as yourself. It is part of that. It, it reflects that. And so Jesus not only answers to satisfy everybody and not incriminate himself, but he also succeeds in, in summarizing in a very memorable way uh, a large strain of teaching of Scripture. No wonder they went away with their jaws hanging open. They just had never seen anything like it. Well, what I want us to do... Oh, by the way, even though they marveled at it, and even though he answered in this way, Luke 23 tells us that one of the charges they made against Jesus was that he, he forbid them from paying taxes to Caesar, which, of course, was a lie. Jesus said nothing of the sort, precisely the opposite. But they did charge him with saying that, uh, and some of that relates back to this conversation. But what I want us to do in the time that's remaining is just to reflect some, uh, some principles that, draw, that we can draw out of Jesus' answer here, Because obviously this is relevant not just for Jesus' day, but for our own as well. The relationship 
that Christians have to their civil government is one that has been much discussed and much debated over the years since Jesus gave this statement. What does this mean and how does it apply? So let me give you just three principles here in closing, kind of a way of application that draw from what Jesus is saying here. First, he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And another way of saying that is basically to render to the government that which it has a right to, that which belongs to it. You'll notice Jesus changes verbs. They say, is it proper to pay taxes or not? Well, Jesus doesn't say, yes, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. As it's translated here, render to Caesar. The, the word has the idea of giving back. Why did Jesus ask what's on the coin? Because he wanted to show them that it's Caesar's picture. You know how children do. You know, that's mine. Well, does it have your name on it? Well, Jesus said, yeah, it's got Caesar's picture on it. It's got his name on it. It belongs to him. Now, there was a view in that day that the coinage, the, the, the money, belonged to the emperor. And certainly uh, the government had an, an, an invested uh, interest in its own currency. And so Jesus doesn't just say give, but the idea is to give back that which belongs to Caesar. Uh, they use it. It's got his face, his inscription. He has a right to it. Now, more broadly than that, we do need to render to the government what belongs to it or that to which it has a right. Now, we saw, we read earlier Romans uh, 13 being a critical passage that, that talks about the civil government and the Christian's relationship to it. Also, First Peter uh, 2, verses 13 through 17 uh, both passage, it, passages indicate that the civil government is instituted by God, and as such, it is an instrument for, for re- not only rewarding those who do good, but for punishing those uh, who do evil as an expression of God's own wrath. And we should give to the government certain things that we owe to it, including taxes. Now, paying back, you know, think about it in our own context. You drove, I trust, on a road to get here today. Um, We use money uh, that is printed and, in a sense, owned by our government. There are many benefits that we enjoy under our government, uh, military, police, civil protection under the laws of our government. Uh, And all of those things place us, in a sense, in an an indebted position to the government, plus the government in effect, in one sense, owns the money as such. It prints the money. We use the money. There's an obligation that is there. Now, nobody likes paying taxes, and we sometimes feel frustrated in some of the things that the government does with our taxes. Um, And the question of whether a certain tax rate becomes uh, uh, confiscatory or, or uh, illegal or wrong tax rate is, is, is a matter for a, a different debate. Jesus doesn't take that question up here. Uh, in fact, this was a fairly low tax, uh, but for them it wasn't the money so much it was the principle. Um, maybe a, a discussion for another day. But the point is taxes are owed, but more than that, honor uh, and obedience uh, think of the fifth commandment to honor your mother and your father, which is the Westminster theologians accurately uh, flesh that out, it has to do with our relationship to any authority, not just our parents, but that of the government or any authority that God has placed over us. The obligation to pray, as Mike prayed earlier, uh, to pray for our civil government. So there is an obligation of us toward our government 
uh, includes taxes but goes beyond that. But suppose someone says, well, that's fine as long as you've got a government that is ethical, that is right, that is just. Well, it's helpful, I think, to reflect on the government under which Jesus said this. Now, you know, by the standards of the day, Rome was, was exceptional. I mean, it had its problems, it had its corruption, but uh, in many ways it was a great blessing to the world of that day with the order that it brought. And not only that, a blessing for the spread of the, government, uh, the, uh, spread of the gospel. Uh, the Roman roads, the Roman peace, all of that facilitated the spread of the gospel. So, but it certainly had its problems, its corruption, its wickedness, its evil, just as every government has ever had, including ours, uh, from day one. So, you know, we can say we don't like the government, we don't like what it does. Uh, therefore, we shouldn't pay taxes or we shouldn't do this or that. Well, let me draw, without going into the whole question of civil disobedience, uh, it's, let me just draw a distinction. It's one thing for a government to be doing things we disapprove or things we don't like or things that are outright wrong, things that are immoral. It's another thing when the government comes to you and says that you have to do something that is wrong unethical or immoral, or that you should stop doing something that is right. Well, we'll take that up in just a minute. So the first principle is to render the government what belongs to it. Second principle, render to God what belongs to him. Now, we need to be careful, because we're not talking about two separate circles, are we? As if here is the sphere of government, here is the sphere of God. In fact, Government is a, in our, our relationship to government is a smaller circle within the circle, larger circle of our relationship to God. Our relationship to the government comes under our relationship to God. Now, when Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God the things that are God's, he's not saying those are two separate areas. Serving God, rendering to, uh, what we should to God. Uh, obviously encompasses our spiritual lives, prayer, the word, worship, and all of that. But it encompasses all of life. Your work, your play, your school, your education, relationships with wife, husband, children, parents, friends, relatives. Uh, it encompasses everything. I mean, our, our relationship to God involves every aspect of life, outward, inner, our thoughts, our attitudes, all of those things, including our relationship to the government, which is a part of that. And it's also true and Christians generally have borne this out, even though they sometimes get the reputation for the opposite, that it's those who serve God who make the best citizens. Because if you take God out of the picture, you're left with the state. And so if you, if you want to avoid statism or the worship of the state or the deification of the state, then you have to have a higher authority, namely God. And so Christians usually make the best citizens, even though they're often slanderously charged with the other direction. Not always, but often. It goes back to this principle. I'm to love my wife, but I will love my wife more as I should if I love Christ more than my wife. Loving Christ as I should, I will love my wife as I should. And it's true in the civic realm as well. If we love Christ and follow him, we will relate to the civil government as we should. Paying our taxes, serving it as best we can, praying for those who have the awesome responsibility before God to govern and to rule. And especially those who are doing a bad job of it because they need God's grace. They need his help. So render the government what belongs to it, to God what belongs to him. But then the third principle. 
God takes priority over the government. And we see this not only by common sense, we see it fleshed out in the scriptures as well. Uh, Acts chapters 4 and 5, they're really early on in the book of Acts. There is a clash between obedience to Christ and obedience to government and to the authorities that are there. In Acts chapter uh, 4, verse 19, where the authorities charge Peter and John not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, they answer, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot, cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then again, more bluntly and directly, uh, where the authorities in, in Acts 5.28 say, again, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet you hear you fill Jerusalem with your teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Now, that's always the Christian's principle. Most of the time, for most of us, obeying God and obeying the government will go together. In obeying the government, it is an expression of our obedience to Christ. But when you have those times where the government tells you to do something God says not to do, or when it tells you not to do something God says to do, like preaching the gospel, at that point you say, we must obey God rather than men. The government may do many things you disapprove of, but I think the point for civil disobedience comes when the government tells you to do what God forbids, or forbids you to do what God tells you to do. And at that point, our our overriding principle has to be, Our obedience to God takes priority over our obedience to the government. Just be sure that really is the case. Well, the people walked away. They were absolutely astounded at the answer that Jesus gave. Uh, We're accustomed to it. Again, one of the most well-known expressions. And yet it's one we need to not let become uh, ineffective because it's so familiar. We need to hear what Jesus is saying here. To take very seriously our responsibility as citizens to render to Caesar that which he has a right to, but also certainly to render to God that which is his. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words of our Lord. It's amazing how much he is able to pack into so few words. Father, we pray that you would give us grace, certainly to be good citizens of the kingdom of heaven to serve you, to honor you, to walk with you, to obey you, to believe in the Lord Jesus. But, Father, we also pray for grace to be good citizens of this kingdom, this earthly kingdom, the United States, of which we are a part. Uh, Father, we pray that of all people, we would be the best citizens. We pray that we would be faithful in our obligations to this government that you have placed over us. Lord, even with all its faults, we thank you for it. Thank you for the stability that we have enjoyed under it. Pray that we will continue to enjoy under it. But, Father, we know that it is not God. You are. And so, Father, give us grace uh, in the days ahead, uh, as in the days past, to serve you first and foremost, and by being good citizens, to glorify you and to commend the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.